0: Listening to
1: Ohio v. the world, an Ohio history podcast, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at Ohiovtheworldpodcast Now,
0: here's your
2: host, Alex Hasty.
0: Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 13. Only two episodes left of season two. This is episode 13, Ohio versus the South. Um, thanks again for voting us. Uh, Central Ohio's number three ranked podcast. According to voters at the Columbus Alive for their best of Columbus. Uh, totally cool. We got in the paper. And thank you guys so much for listening and voting. We've only got two episodes left. Our final episode, episode 15, will actually be a live show. Uh, and that'll be on Sunday, May 13th at 8.30. We are the last show of the entire Columbus Podcast Festival, uh, and that's columbuspodcastfestival.com. You can get full weekend tickets that are only 40 bucks, or if you just want to go on Sunday, I think it starts around noon or 1 on Sunday and finishes with Ohio v. The World at 8.30. Those tickets are 20 bucks. Again, go to columbuspodcastfestival.com um, and buy those tickets up. We need all our supporters to be there. Be- uh, really cool. It's at the Short North Stage there in just outside downtown Columbus uh, on High Street, high in about 4th, uh, the Garden Theater at the Short North Stage. So come see us at the Columbus Podcast Festival Sunday, May 13th, 8.30 p.m. Uh, we'll be doing our final season finale, I should say, of season two. You know, I'm an attorney, and I, I sometimes I go to Fairfield County Municipal Court, which is on Main Street in downtown Lancaster. Um, and right across from the court, in the parking lot, there's a giant mural of general, general Sherman. William Tecumseh Sherman, his hometown, the subject of today's show, is Lancaster, Ohio, about 30 miles southeast of Columbus. Um, the great Civil War general uh, who ends up you know, conquering Atlanta, marching all the way to the sea to Savannah and, and bringing the South to its knees and ending the Civil War and saving our Union uh, in 1864, 1865. Compass, as friends called him, Uh, Is one of the most famous men to ever come out of Ohio. My wife and I, Miss Ohio V. The World, were just in New York City uh, last week. And, you know, walking in Central Park, there's a big statue on the way into Central Park of William Tecumseh Sherman. Um, And today we're in Lancaster at the Sherman House, his hometown and the house that he grew up in, right here on West Main Street, I'm sorry, East Main Street in downtown Lancaster. We're meeting with Frank and Laura Bullock, husband and wife. Um, They've worked at the Sherman House for years. And it's Shermanhouse.org for to, to see the birthplace and Sherman Museum. Uh, great place here in downtown Lancaster. I remember my grandma and grandpa Hasty dragged me down here when I was a kid. Um, again, Shermanhouse.org. Tours are six bucks. That comes with a guided tour for adults. Uh, kids under twelve, I think, are free. Uh, they're open every day of the week except for Mondays. So go check them out. A really cool Civil War museum and a museum uh, dedicated to General Sherman. Speaking of uh, Lancaster, today we're drinking a Saison from Rock Mill Brewing in Lancaster, Ohio. Uh, it's kind of like a Belgian summer ale. It's a little higher alcohol, 7% the Saison, but they, they call them farmhouse ales. They, they have like an earthy taste to them. Saison is very popular right now. Uh, when I say earthy or rustic taste, you know, you'll know you really understand that when, when, you, when you try a good Saison like Rock Mills. Uh Some little fruity blends in there, but really uh, just a great gritty beer. Uh, go to rockmillbrewing.com. They've got an amazing property just northwest of Lancaster. Um, again, rockmillbrewing.com. Really cool back patio. It's up against the Hocking River. They have parties and concerts and barbecues out there. Um, and so these Saisons that they have are really solid, really popular beers right now. So go down to Rockmill and try their Saison in Lancaster. Uh, also, today we're checking in with Sarah Marsom, the Young Ohio Preservationist. Uh, just at the end of this month, 27th through the 29th of April, is the Rust Belt Takeover. Uh, in Columbus and preservationists from all over the Midwest in New York, um, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, um, all over the Midwest will be coming into Columbus for three days of tours um, about historic preservation here in central Ohio. Uh, You can go to the Facebook and look up again, Young Ohio, YOP, Young Ohio Preservationist, or look up Rust Belt Takeover. They still have some events um, with availabilities, but everything's filling up really fast. So if you want to do one of the tours or see what they're what they're going to be offering, everything on that thing is free. Every event, every tour is free. So uh, Sarah will join us to talk a little bit more about that weekend uh, and talk about historic preservation in general and talk about the Rust Belt takeover, August 20, uh, April 27th through the 29th. Uh, also today, super stoked, my friends, my favorite uh, rock band here in Ohio, Bummers. Uh, you can go to bummersmusic.com, but we're going to play a song of theirs, um, a bummer is really somebody from Sherman's Army who used to go out and forage for uh, livestock, for supplies, anything from the, from the Southern citizenry, um, and supply it back to the Army. Uh, those guys were called bummers. And that's not where they get their name for their band from, but they're, they're well aware of it. And we're going to play their song today, The South, since today's episode is Ohio vs. South, uh, one of their many great songs. Uh, again, bummersmusic.com. You can check them out. They're playing Bunbury Music Fest. Uh, that is the first week of June uh, down in Cincinnati, right on the water. Three-day music festival. Jack White uh, is playing Sunday. Bummers, your day starts with Bummers, ends with Jack White. So there's a bunch of good bands, me and uh, Miss Ohio Be The World, and some friends will be down there on Friday. Really cool music festival in downtown Cincinnati, Bunbury Music Fest. And you'll hear Bummers uh, performing live at that festival. Um, good friends of mine, and we'll listen to their song, The South, so stay tuned to the end of the episode. Uh, And I appreciate them letting me blast that song out. It's one of my favorites. Um, And a great band, uh, Bummers. So go check them out, bummersmusic.com. Without further ado, though, let's head to the Sherman House. We're recording this live in Lancaster, Ohio. It's episode 13, Ohio versus South. Kump's Sherman is born in Lancaster, Ohio, February 8th, 1820. Ohio had only been a state for about 17 years. His family comes from the Connecticut area, as do many Ohioans. His father, Charles Sherman, was on the Ohio Supreme Court, a very prominent attorney. But when Cump was just nine years old, he's one of 11 children, at nine years old, his father, Charles Sherman, dies. And he goes to live with his neighbor, also successful uh, lawyer, future senator, future secretary of the interior, Thomas Ewing, uh, Frank and Laura Bullock, who who volunteer and work here at the Sherman House Museum in Lancaster, about his early childhood um, and how he ends up living with the Ewings.
2: His family moved here in 1811 from Norwalk, Connecticut. They came with one child. They eventually had 11 children here in this house. Um, General Sherman was the sixth child born here in downtown Lancaster on Main Street. Yeah, nine years old, his father died very unexpectedly, and um, Mary Sherman could not take care of all the children, so the older ones went to live with friends and relatives. Um, Kump went to live with the Ewing family just um, next door. When he was a young child, he was teased because of his red hair. And so at one point he tried to dye it, and it turned out to be green. And so his mother told him he was just going to have to live with it until it grew out. But that instance, he said, taught him that it's more important what is inside a person than what was on the outside, and he carried that philosophy on to West Point, which tend to get him some demerits.
0: Cump goes to live with the, with the Ewing family. Uh, like we said, Thomas Ewing would become a senator here from the state of Ohio, later the Secretary of the Interior under President Taylor, um, and, and even a, a advisor to President Lincoln at one point. But Sherman's luck in, jo- in joining the Ewing family opens a lot of doors for him. Uh, they're the most prominent family in Lancaster.
1: See, he was one of the most successful attorneys in the state uh, uh, at that time. Lancaster—if—if—if if, if you lived in Akron or Cleveland, even—and you needed a good attorney, you went to Lancaster to get the best attorneys. Uh, I mean, their reputation was simply that strong, and it was part—partly responsible because of General Sherman's father who was an independent attorney before he became a Supreme Court justice, and uh, Thomas uh, Ewing, uh, who eventually became his foster father, and uh, and then after that, his father-in-law.
0: Sherman stays in Lancaster until he's 16, 17 years old. Thomas Ewing, Senator Ewing, gets him into West Point. He'd never left southeast Ohio. Uh, He travels by state church down to Portsmouth, um, down to the Ohio River, and, and takes a boat all the way to Washington, D.C. first, where he stays with, with Ewing for a few days and sees our nation's capital, all of this happening in, in the late 1830s, uh, before going on to New York City, um, where he sees you know the biggest city, uh, one of the biggest cities in America. And he gets a taste of culture that he's never had in Lancaster, um, and he takes to it. He goes to see some family there in, in New York. Uh, on his way to West Point, which is just north on the Hudson River.
1: He hadn't hardly been out of uh, Lancaster more than 15, 18 miles, uh, until he left here uh, to, by stagecoach uh, to go because the trains had not gotten this far west uh, at that time. And uh, uh, then he eventually went on to New York where uh, fr- we went to Washington first and stayed there for two or three days with Thomas Ewing. And then from there went on to West Point, but he stopped over in uh, New York City where uh, he ran into his mother's uh, side of the family from Norwalk because Norwalk, Connecticut today is only about a 20-minute drive from, uh, from Manhattan. And, of course, they in the east were just so curious about uh, this wild man for, because they're considered anything west of the Hudson River. Well, you were cavemen back then and they couldn't wait to see this guy. And so they were going to polish him up as, as much as they could before they sent him on to West Point. So he discovered you know, fine, fine dining in, in very nice restaurants in New York and especially the theater. And he just fell in love with uh, Shakespeare. He academically, he, he, was, he was good. He should have graduated fourth in his class, but Sherman, uh, he did not see the need for all of the polishing of boots and buttons and ironing his pants daily. And he always had that mouth. He had a mouth that run like a sewing machine. And he, he had a hard time keeping quiet in ranks, and you didn't talk in ranks. So he's always getting those stupid demerits. And he got enough demerits to knock him down from fourth in his graduating class to sixth.
0: Today's episode titled Ohio vs. the South about, about William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, you think that he just ravaged the South, didn't care for the Southern people. But in fact... General Sherman had an affinity for the Southern people. And following his graduation from West Point, he goes to the South, places like Fort Pierce, St. Augustine, uh, Mobile, uh, different places all over the South as part of his work with the Army during the Seminole Wars um, and and throughout the 1840s. But he enjoyed Florida, the weather. He loved the weather in the South and the people. He understood the South. Uh, So the people who say, oh, he was just a warmonger who hated Southerners They don't understand him at all and they certainly don't understand his years um following west point when he toured the south
1: so as a result he had to travel around the the southern states purchasing material for the quartermaster and then he was assigned to a judge to help uh resolve issues where the uh, army had taken livestock and other supplies from farmers in the southern area during the Seminole Wars, to fight against the Seminole Wars, when they ran out of supplies, they'd just take it from the local farmers. And so he got to travel all through Georgia and even into Alabama at one point, and both of the Carolinas. So he he uh, he had a very good idea about the, not the, just the geography, but a, but. A, also about the weather conditions in the South. Gave him an advantage. I mean, even though he's fighting Southern uh, generals, you know, those Southern generals had not been in every state in the South, maybe only two or three. And here he had been in more states than they had. And so yeah, it it was a great advantage.
2: He almost had a photographic memory too, as far as the geography was concerned. And he used the census reports really well
0: in 1846, the United States goes to war with Mexico. The Mexican War, so it's called. Uh, and Sherman is late to get into the party. He's sent out to California. But back then, you couldn't just go through the Panama Canal. It didn't exist. You had to take a boat all the way around the southern tip of South America. And basically, by the time he gets to California in 1847, he's too late. The Mexican War, which would rage on the Mexican mainland, is basically over in California. Uh, he's out there... And he misses the war. Although Sherman serves, he sees no combat during the Mexican War. It's something he'd always regret. Uh, he'd always feel would hold him back in his army career. He lives out in California and loves it in California. He's actually out there for the gold rush, the, eight, you know, the 49ers. Um, he's one of the people who reports back to President Polk that, yes, the gold rush is real. In 1849, he comes back east in 1850 to marry his foster sister. Ellen Ewing, Ellen uh, many years younger than him. Sherman is, is nearly 30 years old at this point. He has a huge blowout wedding in Washington. Um, his, his father-in-law and foster father, Thomas Ewing, is working in Washington, and everybody's there, including President Zachary Taylor and his cabinet. We ask Laura Bullock uh, just about that wedding. And also, you know, is it weird that he married his foster sister? I think it might be weird now, but back then they say it was pretty much the norm.
2: Yeah, it was the biggest event of the season, people said. Um, uh, They were married in the Blair House because that's where Thomas Ewing was living at the time. Um, They could not be married in the church because Sherman uh, had not accepted the Catholic religion and that pretty much broke Ellen's heart. The president, the whole cabinet, anybody who was anybody in Washington uh, was at the wedding. Uh, so it was it was a really big deal.
0: And, and was it unusual to for someone to marry their foster sister back no. then? I mean, obviously, it's not a blood relative, but
2: right? No, it was not at all because it was it was actually pretty common for parents to die young, for children to die young. So it was pretty common for other members of the family to take or. Friends and neighbors to take in uh, orphan children, and so not at all. It was it was perfectly normal.
0: Uh um, you
1: know, marrying in a, a first or second cousin was very common right. because that's one way that you kept the wealth in the family.
0: And a lot of things that people don't understand. He loved the arts, singers, paintings, sculptors, uh, the theater. He loved the theater and Shakespeare. Um, that was what he was really into. I mean, when his army career is finally over, he moves to New York just so he can be closer to the arts and becomes a patron of the arts. Um, you know, that's something in California. He seeks out singers and, and, and all these things, and he writes about them in his journal back to Ellen um, and talking about all these different uh, artists. And he loved that kind of community. We asked Lori about this little known fact about Sherman and his love of the arts.
2: He, w- he was a brilliant person and a curious mind, a mind that never, never seemed to quit working. And so he went to the theater often, three times a week. He enjoyed art. He enjoyed those people. He he would he loved to go backstage and visit with the actors and the actresses. He was a founding a member of the Players Club. Um, he was also really interested in different kinds of art, like sculptors and, and, and so on. So, um, I, honestly, I don't think there was anything that he, he wasn't interested in. He, he was, just had such a curious mind.
0: As we said, Sherman's in California during the gold rush. He's working for the army. He sees just dozens of his men desert and go off for the hunt for gold, something he would even do for a few months. He would take a, a, a leave of absence. But most of his soldiers just took off and went and chased their fortune. Sherman, in, in the early 1850s, 1853, finally does leave the Army, and he becomes a banker. Um, but he runs into all kinds of troubles. The market in California is so volatile, um, and he is a prominent banker in California. I'm, he's just unlucky in business. Things like the Panic of 1857, uh, caused by you know the, the wrecking of the SS Central America. Go back and listen to our last episode, 13. Ohio versus gold, uh, where we talk about the gold rush in California. Uh, Tommy Thompson, a really, a really popular episode. But we talk about all that and the crash of the ship of gold. You know, it left a ship that Sherman had actually traveled on himself back to New York. Um, but, it, you know, that gold goes missing. The economy reeling, really counting on it. Sherman moves back to New York uh, as part of his banking job right during the, the panic of 1857. We ask uh, Frank just about his unlucky uh, banking career and his career outside of the Army, Um, a career that really never gets off the ground.
1: Well, when he left the military in in 1853, uh, he started in the banking business because of his experience in the military when he was stationed in California. And San Francisco was just going crazy, and so he was asked to go there to open up a bank, which he did. And he was a very good banker, uh, but the banking business was not good to him. At one point, there, were, in I believe 1856, there was a run on the banks in San Francisco, and there were 12 banks, and nine of them failed, but one of the three that remained in, in uh, business was General Sherman's Bank. But uh, he finally got out of the banking business in 1858 and uh, because there was a second run on the banks, and that really cost him heavily. And uh, so he wanted to try something else. He even tried law. He did not like law That's because right. he just did not. It was very difficult for him to conceive of something being legal but yet not being fair. And that bothered him greatly. St. Louis was the only city in which Ellen and uh, General Sherman both lived, in which they both agreed that they loved that city. And it was, you know, it's like being on Interstate 70 or 71 today. You're right on the major highway because the Ohio River and the Mississippi got you everywhere that was civilized at that point.
0: As so the country slips closer to war at the end of the 1850s, Sherman gets a job basically as the, as the head of a, a military institute, a school in Louisiana uh, that later would become LSU, Louisiana State University, the Tigers. He's down there in the South in 1859, um, and he sees the South preparing for war, Louisiana, talking about secession. Um, and he, he finally leaves that job as the country gets closer and closer to war. And he spent time, a lot of time, in Charleston, South Carolina, one of my favorite cities. But he understood the South. And he goes back to his new home in St. Louis, uh, a city on the Ohio and Mississippi River that he thought would be the the big future mega city in the the United States. And his brother has him come up, you know, all the way to D.C. to meet with the new president, Abraham Lincoln. We talked to Frank about that meeting where Sherman gives it to Lincoln straight that the country needs to be preparing for war, that we're unprepared, and that the South will secede. Uh, Lincoln kind of shrugs him off, uh, and Sherman never forgets that. He never really, I don't know if he ever fully forgave the president for not taking him and others seriously, not taking the South seriously in 1860, just before his inauguration.
1: His brother John, right, who yeah. was a yeah. senator at the time, took him to meet the new president. Uh, and uh, General Sherman didn't even have a job yet. He was just fresh up from the South because he told, and he was running a school in the South in Louisiana. And he saw that what was going on after Lincoln got elected that the Southerners were actually going into military uh, federal forts in taking the weapons and taking them to other places and hiding them there in anticipation of the war. And one of the places they chose to hide them was at Sherman's little military school. And this bothered him greatly. And he told him, if Louisiana secedes, as you are talking about, I will be gone. I will not uh, stay here if, if you secede. And uh, they did, and he did. And that's when... His brother, John, took him to meet the new president. And he said, my brother uh, uh, Sherman here is just up from the the South. And uh, the president asked him, how are our friends doing down there? He said, they're preparing for war, sir.
0: The South fires on Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina Harbor in the spring of 1861, and the Civil War begins. Sherman finds himself commanding Armies in Virginia. He's present at the first real battle of the Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run, a very historic event in the summer of 1861, a loss for the Union, a crushing loss just miles from Washington, called the Great Skedaddle, as soldiers by the hundreds and thousands come streaming haphazardly back into Washington after the defeat at the hands of the Confederate Army. Sherman's one of the few bright spots. He pulls troops together and, and makes for a somewhat more orderly retreat by fighting uh, the oncoming South as, as the rest of the Northerners fled the field. Uh, it provided not just cover for those soldiers that could get back in the fight, but also for all the citizens, prominent citizens of Washington who came to watch the battle. We asked Frank about Bull Run and Sherman's role and how he caught Lincoln's eye
1: first part of that battle was very successful for the Union. Uh, they pushed the uh, Confederates back, but uh, instead of uh, following up on their uh, supposed victory, uh, McDowell stopped and started uh, uh, calling his various generals and officers in to try to decide what to do next. Well, while this was happening, the South reorganized and attacked him before he was ready to pursue. And that's what per- caught the the uh, Yankees off guard. And so they panicked and started back towards Washington. And the closer they got, they started running into civilians who had uh, come out and with picnic baskets. And I mean, this was just a, a big occasion. like. This war is going to be this one big battle, and it's over." They had no idea, and uh, so everybody was panicking, and and there was a creek that was very wide, almost too wide for people to just cross on foot, and so everybody was trying to use the same bridge, and so this was created as very serious backlog, and Sherman saw what was going on, and he started—I mean, he threatened people with his weapon, stop or I will shoot, and got these people reorganized soldiers, to not not soldiers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to 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 slow uh, that advance down. And then they now the South would tell you the uh, the reason they stopped because they were running out of ammunition, but that wasn't necessarily true. But every, any general who ever lost a battle, there was always a very good excuse. Not his fault. It was a good excuse.
0: <laughs> so he organizes kind of a, a, a more organized retreat, or at least buys some time by, through getting his men to fight. That's ex- That was the biggest problem at Bull Run.
1: That's exactly right. But there, you know, other officers recognized that, and the word got to, to, to Lincoln.
0: Sherman's transferred to Kentucky. He's fighting with uh, Major Robert Anderson, the, the major, the commanding officer at Fort Sumter. Um, and Sherman's sent out to Kentucky. And he says some things, he meets the president, uh, the Secretary of War, Simon Cameron. And Sherman, like we said, had been in the South, he saw this war for what it was. But at the time, in the summer and fall of 1861, that kind of stuff in the press and into, into his superiors was crazy talk. This idea that he needed 100,000 men to quell the rebellion in Kentucky, that he would, this army would need four years to conquer the South. No one believed that, not the President, not the Secretary of War, not the other generals, not the soldiers, not the press. Sherman kept saying those things. It gets leaked to the press. And basically the Cincinnati commercial, uh, the newspaper in Cincinnati, says General Sherman uh, is insane. We talked about this, this period of time when Sherman ultimately is put on leave um, because of his grave concerns. Uh, we talked to Frank and Laura about the insane times for General Sherman.
1: Sherman had on his way to Washington from St. Louis recognized that the Union was doing absolutely nothing to prepare for the war, and he knew that the South was. He also knew that just before Fort Sumter was fired on, there was only about 16,000 soldiers in the United States Army. And when Fort Sumter was fired on, about 12,000 of that 16 went south leaving only about 4,000 soldiers in the north to train a volunteer army, when the south had 12,000 regulars to train their army. So he knew that the south had a much better advantage, and he that's why he did not want to be in charge of anything because he knew that at the first battle, whoever's in charge of that battle was going to get defeated. If they got defeated, they would be fired. He didn't want that to be him. Mm-hmm. So he asked Lincoln, do not put me in charge. Well that happened to him in Kentucky
2: pretty much had a nervous breakdown is what we would call it today but he did know what the southern folks were doing and he you know he told Cameron we're going to need a hundred thousand men to to, and and four years to fight this war and Cameron thought he was crazy he said you know it's going to take two battles and we'll be finished so you know Sherman's predictions came true and then some but nobody knew that at the time.
0: And at the time, they thought he was—he was. He was yeah, he was
2: crazy for saying that.
0: And he goes back to, uh, goes back to Lancaster, I think. After that, doesn't he?
2: Yeah, he came back for a thirty-day leave.
0: After a period of time in Lancaster, where Ellen still remained most of the time, and his children um, stayed in Lancaster, where the Ewing family was, um, Sherman would never fully move back to Lancaster, um, choosing to live out west and in St. Louis and later in New York. Um, but he spends some time after he's basically given uh, you know, a month off from the Army, he goes back to Lancaster and gets it together. And when he comes back in the game, he's back in St. Louis, working under General Halleck, who's the commander of the armies in the West. And he starts working under a guy named Ulysses S. Grant. It's this partnership that would not only save Sherman's military career, but also save the Union. We talk about how Sherman gets back in the game as a quartermaster, working for US, U.S. Grant.
1: They had met at West Point. Sherman was a senior, Grant was a freshman, and they had met in civilian life and talked about both of their them had very similar experiences in the military. Both had gotten out of the military, tried civilian life, were not real successful with it, and now they were back in. But Sherman, again, because of his experience in quartermaster uh, in uh, South Carolina, they put him back in quartermaster again when Grant was heading towards Forts Henry and Donaldson. And Sherman knew exactly what Grant needed to to do what he had to do down there. So before he would get the orders to send things by request from Grant, he had the boat loaded and ready to go. And Grant was saying to himself, who in the world is sending all this stuff to me? It's here before I get the paperwork done. And they said, some clown named, named Sherman. And uh, he said, I know who Sherman is. And then Sherman, after Fort Donaldson, requested of Halleck that he be given permission to raise a division of his own and join Grant, and Halleck gave it.
0: Grant moves Sherman up. He finds himself commanding the armies in the field and the armies of the Tennessee at a place called Pittsburgh Landing, um, a battle known as Shiloh. The Confederates surprised Sherman and his army. 63,000 men from the armies of the Tennessee and the Ohio battle, 40,000 men from the south, from the army of the Mississippi. And despite the surprise attack and the Confederate success in April April 6th and 7th, this battle uh, of 1862, Sherman's able again to, to rally a comeback and save the army on the first day
1: intelligence that they were getting, they ignored it, and Grant was sitting in a little town called Savannah with a very bad ankle from a fall from a horse, and he was like 20 miles from the battlefield when, when the battle broke out April 6th, early on a Sunday morning. And uh, Sherman got a wound in the hand that day, and the gentleman who was his next in line right beside him was shot in the chest and killed. He was that close at the opening rounds of the battle, and as Sherman always said, you cannot lead a battle from the from behind. He must be in front, and there he was, and he got shot. They they got the South stopped because again, General Sherman, as my wife had said earlier, that uh, uh, Sherman recognized the battlefield and the geography and the weather. He 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 was probably the best general on either side at that, and he knew that about a a mile or so behind him, there was a break in the forest, and there was an open area of about 100 yards, and that if he got his men across that open area and back into the woods on the other side, that they could really create a mess when the Confederates tried to cross that open area. And that's what got the Confederates stopped at the end of the first day. And then overnight is when Buell showed up with his 6,000, Army. So the next morning, the South was thinking, well, we're going to polish the Union off. We've got them cornered right where we want them. But they had no idea that the uh, Union Army was almost twice the size as it was the day before. And so they, they, uh, after about four hours, Beauregard had to pull the plug and they started their retreat.
0: He runs into General Grant, a very famous moment in the war. It's pouring rain and Grant's underneath a tree at Shiloh. Sherman says to him, well, we've had the devil's day, haven't we, Grant? To which he responds, yep, but lick them tomorrow. I always thought that was crazy. Sherman was going, was going up to Grant to to probably talk about a retreat. But there's Grant smoking a cigar under this tree while it's just pouring rain, trying to get a little rest, and he's fully confident. The Battle of Shiloh was the first massive battle of the Civil War. Like we said, armies of sixty and 40,000 men clashing, um, you know, twenty-three thousand plus casualties. Now, only about thirty-three hundred of those—I no, shouldn't say only—are deaths. But the country here's twenty-three thousand casualties. We asked Frank um, and Laura just about that second day at Shiloh when the Union gets a, a win, finally a much-needed victory in Tennessee.
2: It was the largest uh, casualty rate uh, at that up to that point in time.
1: You got to remember, we we had talked about how the soldiers were. Neither side was prepared for war. And these guys were still in training when the first battles started. And you have to keep in mind that the uh, civilian population were just as big a rookies at war as the soldiers were. And many of them did not know the difference between a fatality and a casualty. And when they said the casualty rate was 26,000 men, they thought 26,000 deaths. And so that's the, the, the civilian population just panicked. They had never heard of anything like that because all they had to, to uh, compare it to was the first Battle of Bull Run. And now they have these huge numbers. And a guy that had been called crazy was in charge of it.
0: battle in Vicksburg, the very important city on the Mississippi River in Mississippi, and they finally capture the city on July 4th, 1863. Sherman, as 1863 turns to 1864, um, he watches Grant become the commanding general of the army. In March, they're supposed to meet in Nashville to discuss the future of the war. What's 1864 going to look like? They meet in Nashville and they take a train, um, Grant's on his way back to Washington to meet with Lincoln to discuss the plan. But Grant wants to sit down with Sherman for a few days before. But they can't get any secrecy on the, on the train from Nashville up to Cincinnati. There's, too, there's not enough room for the maps. There's always southern spies that are everywhere, just like there are northern spies in the south. Um, they can't get any secrecy on the train. They go to Cincinnati, and on March 20th, 1864, they meet at a place downtown called the Burnett House in Parlor A. Uh, they lay the maps out. I always love thinking of this meeting. But they have the whole war in their hands. Two Ohioans, uh, Grant from Southwest Ohio, and our boy Sean uh, Kump, Uncle Billy, as the soldiers called him, from Lancaster. Um, it became a hallowed place, the Burnett House uh, Parlor A, for Army veterans who you were know, visiting Cincinnati. Um, it was one of the places of the war, one of the places of history of the war, where Sherman and, and Grant met to plan the conquering of the South. Uh, we talked to Frank just about the war plan for 1864, the Burnett House uh, in downtown Cincinnati.
1: The result of that meeting was that Grant would, in in the East, would take on and defeat Lee's army. His instructions and orders to Sherman was to go to Georgia and confront General Joe Johnston and defeat his army. There were never any instructions to go attack Atlanta or any other city or any capital is destroy the army.
0: You know, places like the Burnett House, um, these old houses from the Civil War and from the 19th century, uh, they're all still being preserved to this day by what's called a, a historic preservationist. Someone like Sarah Marsom, who joins us from the Young Ohio Preservationists. Sarah's put together a huge party here next week at the end of April, 27th through the 29th. The Rust Belt Takeover in Columbus, young uh, pre- pre- uh, historic preservationists are coming in from all over the Midwest. And from New York and Pennsylvania, West Virginia, uh, to take tours here in Columbus. Have a little fun as well. They have a uh, you know, beer tasting event where people bring beers from all their own uh, locales and a winner is crowned. Uh, but you can go to Facebook, Rust Belt Takeover Columbus, or just go to the YOP's page, Young Ohio Preservationists. Sign up for these tours, they're all free. Um, it's going to be a really cool weekend. And we talked to Sarah just about what they had planned for the weekend um, and why a historic preservation. Is important in these modern times.
3: It's really difficult to see people thinking that you need to destroy the past in order to create a future community. While we believe that in order to create a thriving future in a city like Columbus or anywhere else in Ohio, that you need to save the stories of the past, and then your new architecture can be integrated into the area, but then it tells the full story of where your city's been in the past, where it's going today, and where you hope to see it in the future.
0: What's what's this beer contest? Here?
3: Well, this is the third annual Rust Belt Beer Contest. People bring six packs from wherever they are from, and it is the largest beer flight you will ever experience in your life. <laughs> you get to sample all of them, and then you vote for best flavor, and Best Packaging. And at the end, we have prizes for the winners. Ohio has won every single year. Yeah. And I'm really hopeful we can sustain that legacy. Yeah. Now we're doing German Village to Parsons. We're going to be one of the first people to go inside the completed East Public Project on Parsons. Which is a creative kind of preservation, but also contemporary uh, let's see. We are having an opening party on the east side of Columbus for Friday night to welcome people to town. We are going to have a Fire Engine Houses in Franklinton tour, which will take you inside the Jimmy Rays on Broad, which I mentioned. But you'll also get the opportunity to visit the old train station that's pagoda style, that's now a fire engine house.
0: Yeah, that's the uh, Fire Union Hall. Mm-hmm. It's a great, it's a really historic, cool building. I've been in there a, a few times, we've done some work with them.
3: Well, I'm excited to go in for the first time. So we're really trying to showcase to people, you can preserve things in the form of how they were historically, or you can potentially change them to fit your contemporary lifestyle. We wanna show you the full spectrum of how history is integrated into every aspect of Columbus. We're more than just a football city. We've got a lot of really cool history to explore.
0: Grant heads East in 1864, Sherman gains control of the Western Theater. He decides to set out after General Joe Johnston and the Confederate Army, and he looks at the city of Atlanta. We asked Frank about about his march south and the capture of Atlanta in 1864.
1: And Joe Johnston, uh, now he catches a lot of criticism by modern day historians because of his retreat all the way back from practically from Chattanooga all the way to Atlanta. But you got to remember that Chattanooga and Atlanta were connected by a railroad line, and that was Joe Johnson's supply line. He didn't want to leave his supply line. Plus, he had to pick and choose where to fight because he knew that Sherman had him outnumbered by about 20,000 soldiers and more coming. And so Joe Johnson's philosophy was as long as you have an army, you can do harm to your enemy. But if you have no army, you're nothing. Yeah, you and that's stay on the ex- field. exactly. And that's why he told Pemberton at uh, Vicksburg no matter what you do, do not get trapped in Vicksburg or you will lose your army. And he did.
0: General Sherman and his army, about 100,000 men, make war on the South. He decides to move east, and he brings what's called hard war, Uh, this idea of almost an idea of like total war, where the war is not just against the army but against the infrastructure and against the citizens of your enemy. His army is living off the land in the south, um, and they basically decide to bring the war to the Confederates. We ask uh, Laura and Frank about hard war, It's that idea that in the South, how Sherman is just so hated as being so ruthless to destroy their people and their infrastructure.
2: total war is too harsh. Hard war is very accurate. He, um, you know, he he was in a fight the army if he had to, but his goal was to destroy the will of the people, destroy what the people could use to make war, and if they if they had uh, straw or hay or feed for the animals stored in their barn, then he would burn the barn. If you know, if they they came across a factory or a mill or whatever people could use to make, uh, make war, then that's, those are the things that he destroyed. He destroyed the transportation system because that's the way people could uh, get their armies from one place to another, get supplies from one place to another. So um, he felt like destroying things and destroying the will of the people was the way to win the war.
1: Sherman was uh, a graduate of West Point. So being an engineering school, he knew that if you took that rail and heated the center of it red hot, and then you got men around it and carried that rail to a telegraph pole or a very big tree and bent that puppy around there and then let it cool, it could never be used again. That was the Sherman bow tie.
0: The Battle of Atlanta, as it was called, uh, results in the city falling to Union forces on September 1st, 1864. Sherman's capture of Atlanta and his army's triumph in the South might have saved the Union. Lincoln's up for re-election, and his numbers are terrible. The war-weary country is sick of the war. The Democrats are running General George McClellan against, and McClellan has promised to end the war and seek peace with the South, creating two countries, the United States and the Confederate States of America. And in the late summer of 1864, that two-state system seems like a real possibility. But it's Sherman's victory in Atlanta that galvanizes the country behind President Lincoln and this idea to preserve the Union. We asked Frank and Laura just about that victory, its importance in the election of 1864.
1: President Lincoln was facing re-election in about three months and his popularity was so low, the Republican president was running in an election against General McClellan. And McClellan had already said that if I'm elected, I will let the South go. That would have split our country in half. Continuing slavery in the South, so we would have had a two country.
2: And so, you know, the North had, had very few... Uh, victories and the northern people were just fed up disgusted with war with uh, you know with killing with so on and uh, so this was a huge victory it really meant a lot to lincoln and to the north
0: sherman makes his march to the sea he heads east from atlanta uh, and cuts a swath across georgia towards savannah this is where we we get the term bummers these men from sherman's army who would leave the main army and go foraging as they lived off the land. And again, we'll play uh, the song The South by our friends Bummers Bummersmusic.com here at the end of the episode, so make sure you stick to the end to hear that. One of my favorite bands. Um, But he goes to Savannah, a city that he knew well. He doesn't burn Savannah, and he presents it to President Lincoln as a Christmas gift. Uh, We asked Frank and, and Laura about the march to the sea that brings the South to its knees and makes Georgia howl as Sherman said.
1: First of all, of his 100,000 men, he split that army. He kept 60,000 with him to go towards the east coast. He sent 40,000 back, George Thomas, sorry, to uh, to, uh, uh, cover uh, and protect Nashville uh, from John Bell Hood. Well, he took 60,000 and started east, and uh, he split them in two different groups. About thirty thousand on each side of uh, uh, of him and his headquarters, and they covered air anywhere from thirty to sixty miles wide in an area. And his his instructions were: take what we can use because we're living off the land. He took no uh, supply trains with him, other than what was absolutely necessary, but no food trains. But he did take some cattle, and he took picked up more on the way. But his instructions were, take what we can use, destroy the rest, but leave an ample supply for that family.
0: As Sherman and his men make their march to the sea, North to South Carolina and North Carolina later, they begin freeing slaves. It becomes a humanitarian crisis, really. 5,000 or so slaves just start following the army. Sherman's not going to put rifles in their hands. They have no training. Um, he really wants nothing to do with them. Um, you know, they're having a hard enough time just just feeding his men and supplying his men, let alone this just, you know, caravan of, of refugees, of freed slaves that start following um, you know, Sherman wants to conduct this, this dangerous mission without their interference. But we ask Frank and Laura about the freed slaves in the South when Sherman makes his march.
1: And then as they would free these slaves, then too many of them started, in Sherman's opinion, too many of them started following his army. And he didn't like that because he was having a tough enough time feeding his own army, right. let alone all these, all these slaves. But he was considered by the black community. Or the, or the slaves to uh, oh he was like a god to them because he is the guy that's setting them free right and uh, there were some that uh, when they actually saw Grant uh, Sherman that it, it was next to seeing God they had prayed for freedom all their lives yeah. and here it came.
0: in February of 1865, as the war continues to rage, Sherman and his men reached the capital of South Carolina, Columbia. They arrive in Columbia, and and this cloud about what happens, the burning of Columbia, South Carolina, has always followed Sherman around. There was even a congressional inquiry into it after the war. He would have to answer for it. It was the capital of South Carolina, the original seceding state. It was South Carolina where Fort Sumter, where the shots were fired. We asked Frank and Laura just what happened in the burning of South Carolina. Did Sherman order it? Was it an accident? And how exactly did the, the capital of South Carolina basically burn?
2: I don't think any one person or any group of people can, one group of people can be blamed for uh, Columbia. Um, the Confederate soldiers burned cotton as they were leaving the city to make sure that the northern troops didn't, you know, didn't get hold of it. Um, ex-slaves had, had came. You know into the city and they were kind of rampaging um prisoners of war were released and they were very unhappy that they'd been uh prisoners for so long um then of course sherman soldiers came into town some of them were drunk some of them were trying to put the fires out um so then during the night a big wind came up so you've got Uh, whiskey, wind, the whole mixture created, uh, um, you know, the burning of Columbia. Um, So my personal opinion is it was simply an accident of war. The citizens of of Columbia were, you know, passing out whiskey to because they they didn't want their city burned.
1: Well, the mayor had gone out to visit Sherman before Sherman's boys ever entered the city and under a flag of truce and said, hey, look, why, why burn our city? This, this thing's over and we both know it. And why, there's no need for any more destruction. And Sherman said, well, I have to agree with you. So we will not burn your city. And so the word got out that they were not gonna burn the city. And the citizens were so overjoyed to hear that that when the soldiers did come in, they had gone to the, the <laughs> distillery, thank you, and got jugs and barrels of and was passing out free drink to these Union soldiers as they came in on empty stomachs. They had not had a bite to eat that day, and then here's this burning cotton, and then suddenly, as these guys are starting to drink, they tried to put out the fire, but they were more interested in drinking than they were putting out the fire, so they didn't get it completely put out, so that strong wind, just spread the fire to homes and then the homes started. You got to remember there was no zoning.
0: There's no fire codes, yeah.
1: Exactly. And almost everything was made of wood. And so it it just didn't take much. But Sherman was called into a congressional investigation after the war was over, over Columbia, and he said, "I did not order it burnt." But it doesn't bother me a bit because these people deserved anything they got because they started a war by firing on Sumter that caused the deaths of 650,000 men.
0: Sherman's men Sherman leaves his men uh, in March of 1865. He goes to City Point, Virginia, which is the headquarters for U.S. Grant in the Army of the Potomac. And it's the first three-way meeting, first and last three-way meeting between Sherman, Lincoln, and Grant. Also, Porter was there from the Navy. But they discuss the end of the war. They talked to Lincoln about how they want him to end, how they want them to end the war in, in Virginia and in North Carolina, where Sherman's been now, we're, we're going, running roughshod over the South. Lee surrenders to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia on April 9th. And less than a week later, on Good Friday, April 14th, Lincoln is assassinated at Ford's Theater. Sherman finds out the next couple of days uh, by telegram about Lincoln's assassination as he settles into negotiations with Joe Johnston. Um, and we ask, uh, we, ask, we ask Frank and Laura you know, how Sherman got into some trouble with his liberal surrender terms to Johnston um, and how finally the war comes to an end, uh, April 26, under Sherman's watch. Many people think the war ended at Appomattox when Lee surrendered to Grant, but there's still a war raging in the Carolinas with Sherman. But the Civil War finally does end when Sherman uh, oversees the surrender of Joe Johnston's army.
1: City Point, which was General Grant's headquarters, and Lincoln went to visit Grant, and Grant invited uh, Admiral Porter uh, and uh, and, uh, Sherman to come and visit. And so all four of them met there, and the bottom line was they asked, Lincoln, how do you want us to end this? We think there's only going to be one more major battle, maybe two, and Lincoln said, oh, surely not. He didn't want any more deaths at all, no more bloodshed. And they said, well, how do you want us to end this? And Lincoln's words were, let them up easy. We have to live with these people after this war is over. And Sherman took that to heart, and so did Grant. So Grant gave Lee very fair terms. But when it became Sherman's terms with Joe Johnston, he went even a little bit further and gave more liberal terms to Johnston than Grant had. And a couple of the terms that he gave them, like the right to vote, that's a political decision. That should never have been a political decision made by a military man. And so the people in the North, when they heard this, went crazy on Sherman. Oh, he's wanting to become a, a dictator. He's wanting to become president. He's, I mean, they, that's they right were, after Lincoln died. Exactly.
2: He did not know that Lincoln had been assassinated and neither did Joe Johnston. So that, that changed attitudes very
0: quickly. I think they found out almost together very quickly. Well, yeah.
2: Well, before they actually started their negotiations, um, Sherman showed, um, Johnston the, the telegram
0: Following the war, Sherman continues in the Army. Uh, he's a lieutenant general. And when Grant gets elected president in 1868, he's named the commanding general of the entire U.S. Army. He immediately begins these Indian wars that we know about in the 1860s and 70s. He's the commanding general when Custer and his men are, have their last stand in uh, 1876. You know, it's a topic Custer that we'll tackle in, in season three as he was from Ohio as well. Sherman's remembered for some pretty famous sayings. But maybe his most famous came in Columbus in 1880 when he said, war is hell. One of the great war makers of American history telling a group of veterans in Columbus, Ohio, that war is hell. It's a much publicized meetup in 1880, the summer of 1880, of the Grand Army of the Republic. The veterans would have these giant conventions and meetups every year. They're very popular events. And there's one to be held in Columbus that was much talked about as President Rutherford B. Hayes. From Delaware, Ohio. A decorated war veteran himself was going to speak. Sherman joins him on the trip and, and he makes his famous speech, War is Hell. Uh, you know, 50 or 60,000 men descended on Columbus for that weekend. Now it was a rainy day. and Not nearly that many were present at Franklin Park when that speech was made. But we asked Frank about that speech, War is Hell.
1: Columbus uh, to Franklin Park uh, as And because at that time, it was also the Ohio State Fair was being held there at the same time. And whenever the president left, there was no Secret Service back then. So whenever the president left Washington, General Sherman or whoever was in charge of the army totally, uh, took a small escort and went with, the, uh, went with the general, and that was Sherman's job. So when they got on the dais that day, and more and more ex soldiers showing up bringing their kids some of them were even wearing partial of their old uniforms and pointing up on the look that's Uncle Billy that's sure to see that one That's. Your, yeah and Sherman looked out and saw these kids and this he saw the look in their eyes like and he anticipated that as these kids see war as all glory well Hayes started his speech and as soon as he started his speech of rain downstorm that downpour started and finally Hayes says you can read about my speech in tomorrow's paper and he started off the stage so Sherman and the rest of the dais get up and they started to leave but then all these uh, soldiers started Uncle Billy Uncle Billy speech Uncle Di-. well Sherman could not turn these men down so he stood there in the rain and said I'm sorry my be- my speech is not prepared I just came here to escort the president, but what I'm seeing kind of bothers me because I see the look in the eyes of these some of these kids that war is all glory. Boys, war is all hell. But he kept hearing journalists asking him and asking his aides about his famous war's hell speech. He had no idea what they were talking about. Finally after about a year, he got one of his aides to write. To the Columbus Citizen Journal to find out exactly what he had said, and that's how he found out. He found out that he had said war was hell.
0: Kump had a just incredible disdain and utter disdain for politicians and politics. Uh, but he's always sought after as a candidate for president, uh, and he emerges as a major candidate in the 1884 election. Uh, at the Republican convention in Chicago, Sherman becomes a serious candidate. He doesn't want to be. But his name is bantied about it's Chester Arthur, uh, the president who filled in, the vice president who filled in for the assassinated Ohio and James Garfield. He's one of the favorites against James G. Blaine, uh, the senator from Maine, uh, who's been at the center of U.S. politics for, you know, 15, 20 years. The idea is that Arthur and Blaine are going to split the vote and that they're not going to be able to come to a consensus. And it's at that point that the, that the number of delegates want to turn to Sherman. Uh, Sherman gives a famous quote about that, about that attempted uh, run by delegates of him in the 1884 Republican Convention. Sherman's forced to give a definitive statement to the delegates, and he telegrams back a famous quote uh, that you still hear today about people who are running or not running for president. When Sherman says in a telegram, if nominated, I will not accept. If elected, I will not serve.
1: Forgotten this, but I heard my wife say it the other day that uh, in one of the requests for him to run for president, and he said, given a choice between four years in prison and four years in the White House, I would choose four years in prison.
2: But he was asked almost every time there was a president, well, every time there was a presidential election from Atlanta um, on until 1890. Um, you know some uh, some party sometimes democratic sometimes republican uh sometimes people from the south even uh would ask him to run and you know his answer was always as he said the answer i learned uh from banking no
1: you got to remember that sherman with his father being an attorney and then a supreme court justice and being surrounded with Thomas Ewing and other people, he had been around politicians and attorneys all of his life. John, yeah. Oh, and his brother John, 42 years in Washington, yeah. So he knew how cruel these people could be and he wanted no part of it.
0: Sherman would live out his days in New York City. He's a popular speaker on the circuit, a patron of the arts in in the Big Apple, um, and, and just a, still a very, very famous famous citizen one of the most famous people to ever come from Ohio. But he gets sick and dies on February fourteenth, 1891, at the age of 71. His funeral was on a freezing cold day down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. I, I've seen pictures of it. There's a huge turnout. Um, even Joe Johnston, his old adversary in the South, the Confederate general, uh, general, shows up to the funeral to pay his respects. We asked Frank and Laura about that funeral um, and how it was the end of Joe Johnston.
1: Honorary pallbearer was Joseph Johnston from the South. From the South, and it was a drizzly, cold. Remember, he he, he died on February fourteenth. What we celebrate today is Valentine's Day, and uh, Joe Johnston stood watching the procession going by, not wearing a hat, and his aides were going crazy, and he said, "What's wrong with you? You've got to put this hat on." He said, "If if." We were reversed. If I was there and he was here, he would not be wearing a hat. And he refused to put that hat on. And, of course, he got pneumonia and died two weeks later.
0: You know, there's some people in a modern assessment who look at Sherman and his march to the sea and consider him to be a war criminal. His Southern strategy across the towns, destroying the railroads, infrastructure, private homes, and the private lives of Southerners in Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. The burning of Columbia. Is still talked about. Uh, But Sherman's hard war, I believe, was a necessary evil. The South was not going to quit until they were actually defeated, demoralized, and humiliated. And Sherman did that in the South. He was the right man at the right time to save the Union. He's still hated in the the South, General Sherman. um, But Frank argues that he saved lives. Sherman was opposed to the wholesale slaughter that you see in Virginia uh, between Lee and Grant, 1864, uh, even in 1863, those casualty numbers are just insane. Sherman went about it a different way. You know, the South sees Sherman as this, maybe the worst man in the war, uh, but Frank disagrees. He says, Would you rather have Sherman, or would you rather have the butchers like Grant and Lee?
1: But if you go up to Petersburg, Virginia, or Richmond, you cannot count the thousands and thousands of graves, but you can tell. That Lee and Grant were there. So I ask, who do you want coming after you? Lee and Grant or Sherman? You can build a barn again. You can bring it back. But nobody comes back from the grave. From Garfield's
2: Tomb to the Serpent Mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history. There's so many books you need to see. I like
3: reading, and I like
0: reading. The tip a canoe in Tyler too. from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon. So many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I
1: like
3: reading.
0: Our book recommendation for today is, is William Tecumseh Sherman, In the Service of My Country by James Lee McDonough. came out in 2016. Uh, a book I've read, actually audibled, uh, Audio booked it twice. I mean, it's a it's a long one, almost 800 pages, but it really does play out his entire life, all those years in Lancaster and in Ohio, um, different trips he takes to Cincinnati and Columbus, um, Mansfield, all over the state. Uh, but it really is the most comprehensive biography that I've read of Cump, Uncle Billy William Tecumseh Sherman. Again, it's it's William Tecumseh Sherman in the service of my country by James Lee McDonough. I just got it on Audible um, and really enjoyed it. You know, there's a ton of great books at the Sherman Museum. Again, shermanhouse.org. Thanks again to Frank and and Laura Bullock for for doing this interview. But they have a whole library there where you can buy books about Sherman and about the war. Uh, And I suggest you go down there. Again, do a tour. It's a really cool place. Just a nice little day trip uh, from Columbus. And you've got to thank Frank and Laura again. Let me interview them there at at the museum. I, I toured the museum. But actually, our first interview, I accidentally lost. Uh, my computer crashed, and we lost the entire interview after it happened. So I had to come back the next week. We actually did two interviews with, with the Bullocks. So I really appreciate them being cool about that and agreeing to do a second interview. Um, so thank you so much. Again, we've got the YOP, the Rust Belt Takeover of Columbus, uh, for your historic preservation list or anyone who wants to even learn about historic preservation Go to Facebook, look up Young Ohio Preservationist, the YOP, uh, and check out their events on their page for the Rust Belt Takeover, April 27th through the 29th. Thanks, for Sarah, uh, for joining us. Also, we are doing our finale uh, episode. We've got one episode before that, but our finale will be at the Columbus Podcast Festival. Get your tickets. we got to have some people there. We're closing it out on Sunday night uh, from 830 to 930 um and again that's at the short north stage go to columbuspodcastfestival.com you can buy tickets there you don't even have to buy them for the whole weekend you can just buy them for sunday for 20 bucks um they've got a bar uh they've got other shows going that night and like i said we'll be on at 8 30 to do our season finale episode live can't wait to see everybody there uh lastly my friends bummers jeff pearl chris staris cody smith on drums and steven great guys i really appreciate them um let me share with you one of their songs. Uh, Bummers, like we said, are you know, some of these guys who used to go forage for Sherman's Army in the south on the march to the sea. Um, but they're just an amazing surf rock band here in Columbus. They play all over the region. Um, and you can see them again at the Bunbury Music Festival. On, uh, they're playing that whole weekend, the first weekend in June, on the river in Cincinnati. Great music festival. Always has some huge names. Um, and go check out Bummers. I saw them play on a little floating raft in Cincinnati at that festival a couple years ago. Great guys, uh, and they don't need this song on here. I mean, we're talking about a Spotify song that's got you know 350,000 listens, um, but just a fantastic band, bummersmusic.com, and we're going to play for you their song, The South. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been Episode 13, Ohio vs. South. Here's Bummers with their song, The South.
3: Oh, I bet she came from the South. Wonder-